Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, behind the bastards is the podcast you're listening to right now. I'm Robert Evans, <laughs> the host. We we talk about bad people, tell you all about them. And today, my guest, Matt Lieb, who hey. is a, a comedian and also mind Liebling. The, the, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's cute. Your name is Matt Lieb, mein Liebling, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Kinda, it, yeah. Lieb is, is German for love, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, you know, some people call me Maddie Love. Maddie oh. Love. Oh, that's I mean, no wonderful. No big Papa re- L. <laughs> yeah, Big Papa L. Like, these are all, like, I would like people to, no one's mm-hmm. actually done it yet, but if you want to call me Maddie Love, Big Papa L, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Love Maddie, whatever you want, just, uh, you know, fucking. Call me nice names. Uh, well, yeah. Th- that's what this podcast is. This is the show where I say nice <laughs> things about a random guest. Hell um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want the show where I say cruel things about a random guest, <laughs> just uh, just stick around for another half hour. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to make Gilbert Gottfried cry. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> so specific, Robert. <laughs> no, I love Gilbert. Anyone who has the courage to get up on stage the day after 9-11 and tell jokes uh-huh. about 9-11 <laughs> is, is a hero. <laughs> He was the true hero of 9-11. He really was. Gilbert Gottfried, firefighters, mm-hmm. and then Gilbert Gottfried again. Gottfried again. <laughs> yeah. Matt, before we What's get up? into it, because the yeah. topic today is just going to blow people away. You want to you wanna plug anything right now? 
Oh, yeah. Well, I do a uh, The Only Sopranos podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a rewatch podcast of The Sopranos called Pod Yourself a Gun. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you should you should check that out. If you like The Sopranos, even if you don't like The Sopranos, you know, it's just uh, it's just a good time. And Uh, and Pod Yourself a Gun is legally the only Sopranos podcast. If you hear another one, call the ATF. They regulate Uh, that and they'll go shoot those people's dogs. Yeah, no, that's (laughs) That's what the ATF does. What do you want? their job i I know i don't like that vibe Mm -hmm. i know it's not cool that that's their job but it Mm -hmm. is Um, it is their job yeah yeah no there's uh, some people think there's this other sopranos podcast but that's a that's like a deep fake so Mm -hmm. uh don't Mm -hmm. fuck with that yeah that's the Um, deep state trying to trick you exactly that's a psyop to get you to uh to like uh you know the wire instead but yeah it's really just a stealth the wire podcast exactly and fuck that shit Mm -hmm. this is about the fuck that shit Mm -hmm. yeah hell yeah also i do a a movie podcast called the film drunk Frockcast. both of those are with uh, vince mancini who is my uh co-host and pod life partners now is he at all related to boom boom mancini he i i doubt it um but it's it's possible pretty good warren zevon song about boom boom mancini yeah kill the guy Mm -hmm. also vince mancini is also the name of uh sonny corleone's bastard son in uh godfather part three so uh that's very fun a lot of mafia tie-ins with this uh speaking of mafias you know what else (laughs) is an unaccountable group of dangerous criminals matt um the police well yes this is is a long time coming but 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 this is even worse than the police matt today we're talking about the arch bastard of them all the fda oh shit yeah that's right motherfucker the food and drug administration that's right that's who we're we got two parts on the fda this week (laughs) you know that's right literally i this is uh, I did not know. I was coming in here expecting. Listen, we've talked about Nazis. We have we've talked, talked about Nazis. We've talked about uh, Doctor Oz. We've talked about we uh, people who uh, you know uh, created the Boy Scouts and touched all children. amateurs. All amateurs. Reinhard Heydrich ain't got shit on the food and drug. Admi- <laughs> okay, that might be going a little far. I'm excited. I um, thought that, yeah. yeah. We, we, we make a lot of fun of the FDA, and I've always found, like, goading them into violence funny because they're kind of like the most milquetoast three-letter agency the government has, right? The oh, FBI yeah. is, like, terrifying. Mm-hmm. The ATF is this big, drunken, bloodthirsty frat boy. The CIA kills entire governments. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, the FDA can't even, like, ban people from drinking bleach in a timely manner. <laughs> <laughs> like, it takes years to be like, oh, they, we probably shouldn't let people give their kids bleach water. Yeah, they, they just do press conferences where they're like, Stop! Yeah, guys, this is bad for you. Oh, just a school marm. But the reality is that that kind of like amiable toothlessness is Mm -hmm. is a front that hides an agency as corrupt and deadly as any part of the U.S. government. In fact, probably has greater societal harm in a lot of ways than most. Our friends at the FDA may have a have a body count that might might shock you. But before we get into that, we should spend some time talking about the world before the FDA, because this is not just as simple a story as like government agency does bad things. It's actually like it's like an Anakin Skywalker story of this like great hero who rises up and then (laughs) crumbles. The yeah, FDA but, is the Anakin Skywalker of three-letter agencies. Oh shit! That's, so we're, uh, <laughs> today we're gonna like lead up to them becoming a Jedi, and the next mm-hmm. episode they wind up falling in the lava planet. Oh shit! Yeah, mm-hmm. I hate you. I love yeah. that shit, man. Mm-hmm. That guy it's was great. Angry. 
and and we'll 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 try to figure out throughout this who the Obi Wan Kenobi of the FDA is because that's actually I, I think I may have a but well I'm getting ahead of myself the Sackler so, family well yeah once upon a time people foraged trapped and hunted for food generally in that order of like amount of calories gained right uh, we developed methods of preservation over time um, you know stuff like you'd salt your meat and you could make like a jerky you could even like even if you're a hunter gatherer you could do that in a cave or something. Right. Um, you would smoke certain things, you know, and as 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 time went on, more foods, we got better at preserving stuff and we also got better at like trading. And so more foods began to travel greater and greater distances. But the extent to which most foods could actually go geographically was very limited, right? You couldn't you couldn't take mangoes from one place to a place like a thousand miles away, you know, 800, 900 years ago. Very well, you could take like the seeds, maybe you could grow them. But like mangoes don't last all that long. No, you know? Yeah, they go bad yeah. real fast. So a lot of stuff like that's why some of this stuff became like so prized because if you could manage to get it to like the emperor or something, it was a gift that was really valuable because you couldn't get stuff to travel nearly as far as you can today, which meant that like back for most of human civilization, people ate pretty locally by default, right? There was trade and like spices and stuff that keeps well, but like most food was grown or whatever, hunted, trapped, whatever, pretty close to where you lived. Now, when the Napoleonic Wars kicked off in the early 1800s, uh, our boy Nappy offered a bounty to any inventor who could figure out a cheap, quick, and effective way to preserve food in quantity, right? Mm. Because you, you still have this problem in the 1800s of like, we can kind of salt meat, we can bake these like shitty, really hard biscuits, hardtack and stuff that like will yeah. keep for a while, but like most stuff doesn't keep well and like scurvy's a problem, vitamin deficiencies are a problem because if you're like on the march or if you're usually not on the march, but like you're posted up and fortified in like the winter, it's yeah. like, well, how do you get everyone, maybe you don't have a lot of food available in the winter. So either you're going to be like foraging from the local area or stealing from people or uh, you have a lot of famines caused because an army will camp out suddenly and they'll take all the food in the surrounding area. Um, so Napoleon's like, I have a lot of war I want to do, and I don't want to be limited by the fact that we're shit at preserving food. So somebody figure out a way to do this. And Napoleon does this with a bunch of stuff. He's a very like forward thinking, he's a pretty smart dude. Um, Mm. and this, this bears fruit very quickly in 1809, a French brewer named Nicholas Appert realized that food cooked inside a glass jar and sealed didn't spoil. If you put whatever kind of food or something in a glass jar, you stick in some salt or some spices, you cook it for a while, it'll stay good for i mean really for years in some cases i don't think they were that good at it then but it'll stay good a hell of a lot longer is this um, the dude who invented pickles uh, not quite uh <laughs> but this is the guy who started the process of inventing canning um oh. and the, the french state was unable to master the art of canning and quantity right they figure out that this works but it's like figuring out how to make the seals right and how to get like it's a process we're not yeah. as good at glass then as we are now so like having glass that can stand because you have to like i do a lot of canning now uh a good friend of mine taught me how and it's you have to like basically boils a, a can with food in it uh for like 20 30 minutes you know so it like the glass it takes a while to make glass that can reliably stand up to that even today some of it's gonna break yeah um so it's a process I mean, totally i totally relate to that every time i try to can I'm, yeah you know i just can't i'm as as a fellow canner i mm-hmm. uh you know, it's just, I get it, dude. Hard. It's hard. It's hard. Can. It's hard to do if you're like trying to make an army's worth of food and, and preserve it. So yeah. they figure out that this works. Um, but it doesn't really get the, the French government doesn't get good at it in time for Napoleon to, to stop 
to to like not lose his wars right uh-huh. um and it would have helped like the the whole russian campaign having like good canned and tin food yeah, might have really helped out you know <laughs> that really would have like that could have been a could have been a game changer that could have been a game changer man but uh yeah you know fuck that's too but bad. obviously like now that the the basic idea is understood the process gets more and more developed over kind of the early to mid 1800s and it spreads all throughout europe as soon as other nations realize this is possible a mm. lot of resources get developed into like canning and then tinning food the portuguese are like the best at tinning in fact if you if you wind up in like lisbon ever which is a beautiful city Mm -hmm. um the airport has like these stores that are just hundreds of different kinds of weird canned foods like stuff you've Mm -hmm. never seen canned because that's like portugal's motherfucking thing is canning particularly (laughs) like seafood they're the most Um, proud of just (laughs) canning different fucking weird this is just hella canners yeah we just put some dirt in a can put some dirt in it just we can put nobody can stop us We can pretty much put anything in a can, dude. Yeah. yeah, and these are this this these developments in canning and tinning are a huge part of why the last huge because the biggest wave of European colonization is the 1800s, right? That's yeah. like the when stuff really starts to go huge um, outside of like you know North and and, and Central America, and um, like the, the scramble for Africa and stuff, and a lot of like the colonialism in in, in Asia starts happening in this period. Yeah. Um, and canned and tin food is a big part of what makes that possible. It's a big part of like why these guys we've talked about on the show these explorers in africa and whatnot right. for like leopold are able to do what they're able to do because they're able to take you know a lot of what they need with them and keep it in the jungle heat so cans aided like global colonialism oh absolutely yeah it's hugely important <laughs> um being able right. to like reliably have the nutrition you need and take it for a significant period of time that's a yeah. that's very important i never even considered that Damn. yeah yeah so uh nicholas appert had stumbled upon canning but he didn't really know at the time what he was doing uh and today we call the process that he kind of helped to discover pasteurization um and this is again heating a liquid to 120 to 140 degrees for about 20 minutes uh pasture the 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 guy that the pasteurization comes from actually like figured out what pasteurization was and like scientifically what was going on and he did this in the 1850s while he was actually trying to preserve wine uh Mm. so 18 50s Pasteur discovers pasteurization um, which people already kind of knew about but he's like the guy who figures out scientifically what's going on and slapped Um, his name on it and slapped his fucking name on it that's right Uh, but he's just trying to preserve wine it takes another 20 years before a German chemist figures out that the same process could work on milk which at the time was filled with salmonella and tuberculosis we will talk a lot about how fucked up milk was in the (laughs) that's like half of this episode milk was a fucking nightmare back in the day like I I don't give a shit like however much you like Lovecraft cosmic horror nothing is scarier than milk in the 1870s. <laughs> Why did people it is, drink it if it was it was like that's Russian a great roulette. question, Matt? Because it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Everything was just so gross back then. Yeah, yeah. They're like, listen, one out of four of these yeah. main courses is going to kill you anyways. Might as well add some milk to it. Yeah. So the Germans figure out that you can pasteurize milk in like the 1870s, and obviously milk's not the only thing you can pasteurize but that, that's when that gets figured out but pasteurized milk doesn't really hit the u.s in quantity until the 30s so there's like a 60 year period where we can but we aren't and this mm. is the story of why so in 1899 harvard microbiologist 
Theobald Smith discovered salmonella, which obviously had existed for a long time and been killing people for a long time, but he figures out like why people are dying from milk. Um, and he suggests like, hey, we should pasteurize this stuff. The Germans have figured it out. It's very easy. You just have to heat this shit up for a while. Yeah. Um, and there's this immediate panic by the American Pediatric Society, who as soon as this guy is like, we should be pasteurizing our milk, they're like, pasture heated milk will give babies scurvy. It robs it of nutrients. Don't do it. <laughs> was, was there like a reason? Like, why would they g- give a shit? Or are they just in I, the pocket of big you know, raw milk? You, you hear it a bunch like that, like cooking vegetables, steaming vegetables, you lose some. I'm sure you do lose some nutrients. I don't think mm-hmm. it's enough to have any meaningful impact on diet and i think it's that kind of thing we're like yeah it's fine like maybe there's a little less nutrition but there's also no salmonella yeah, no and salmonella. that's probably a bigger problem for the baby that's the, that's the best trade-off <laughs> mm-hmm. babies are notoriously vulnerable to dying yeah um that's what everybody says about they're them. so easy to kill oh my god don't even every time get i see a baby i'm like easy dude mm-hmm. easy mm-hmm. if i wanted to i could kill like many babies in a row i absolutely. don't because i'm not a absolutely. monster but yeah i could do it but it's good to know it's good to know you yeah. know sometimes yeah. i just like walk past a park and go like i could take you all <laughs> if i needed if i needed to you know if i needed to if the chips were down yeah anyway <laughs> so there's this immediate like backlash against pasteurization which is mainly due to like the expense it's going to cost money to do this they're gonna have to retool the milk producers you'd have Mm. to retool your whole production line to allow for pasteurization um now obviously pasteurization would also allow milk to last a lot longer you can keep it good for a shitload longer if you pasteurize it so a logical person might say like hey yeah you're going to spend more money retooling your production lines but you'll get to keep your milk for longer and it'll all work out in the end Mm -hmm. um but the milk companies are just like, no, it's going to cost us money. Like, fuck that shit. Uh, we don't want right. to stop having our cow juice dumped into a bottle that a guy then sneezes a mouthful of chewing tobacco <laughs> into before <laughs> half-assedly sealing and leaving in the hot sun. So they resisted pasteurization. But they were really open to pr- better ways to preserve milk. They just wanted it to be cheaper than pasteurization was going to be. In 1896, Dr. John Hurdy, a former professor from Purdue, formally endorsed the use of use of formaldehyde as a good food preservative. Now, that sounds like we're going to say some like quack doctor shit. It's actually not that fucked up. Mm. A whole lot of foods you eat every day contain formaldehyde. There's formaldehyde in pears and apples in like all crustacean uh, that all crustaceans that we eat in mushrooms. They've all got some amount of formaldehyde in them. It's it's fine. It exists in because it, it, it preserves things like generally when you're looking at like fruits that last longer on the shelf, it's because there's some formaldehyde in them. We're not shooting them into that. It's just like a thing that occurs in nature. Mm. Um, so Dr. Hurdy realizes this and he's like, well, clearly, even though like this stuff can be toxic in quantity, th- tiny amounts of it can be fine. And so he proposed using a very small amount, uh, two drops of formalene. And formalene is like 40% formaldehyde, 60% water. So just two drops of very diluted formaldehyde per pint of milk. So that's his suggestion. If we do, if we put in a tiny amount, it'll make the milk keep a lot longer and it won't be toxic. Um, yeah, it'll still have, uh, oh, will, will it still have salmonella though? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, potentially, yes, that does not, it does not cure the salmonella part. Now that said, like the longer you leave it out, the more risk of a lot of bad things happening. Sure. So it does make it a lot safer. Um, but so he's like, Hey, a tiny amount of formaldehyde can help your milk 
last longer on the shelf. The milk producers, big businesses, all they hear is, oh, there's a way to make our product last longer. Uh, and we should just pour as much of the shit in there as we <laughs> yeah. possibly can. Right. Uh, yes. And to, to talk about how this went, I'm going to quote Deborah Bloom, who is like the fucking expert on mm-hmm. specifically this shit, writing for Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, so dairymen began increasing the dose of formaldehyde, seeking to keep their product fresh for as long as possible. Chemical companies came up with new formaldehyde mixtures with innocuous names such as Iceline or Preservaline. The latter <laughs> was said to keep a, yeah, formaldehyde. <laughs> the latter was said to keep a pint of milk fresh for up to 10 days. And as the dairy industry increased the amount of preservatives, the milk became more and more toxic. Herdy was alarmed enough that, by 1899, he was urging that formaldehyde use be stopped, citing increasing knowledge that the compound could be dangerous even in small doses, especially to children. But the industry did not heed the warning. In the summer of 1900, the Indianapolis News reported the deaths of three infants in the city's orphanage due to formaldehyde poisoning. A further investigation indicated that at least 30 children had died two years prior due to the use of the preservative, and in 1901, Herdy himself referenced the death of deaths of more than 400 children due to a combination of formaldehyde, dirt, and bacteria in the milk. Another analysis calculated that there was so much raw shit in milk that the citizens of Indianapolis consumed an estimated 2,000 pounds of poop per year. What the fuck, So it's not just the formaldehyde, but they go (laughs) hog wild. They're just dumping it in there. Um, It's very funny. 2,000 pounds of shit per year by the city of Indianapolis. I mean, just like straight, there's, they're just, they're, the doo-doo is in the milk. There's shit in the mm. milk now, too. Oh, there's always been shit in the milk, buddy. Oh, man. Well, I don't know if you've ever had, like, livestock, but they're not, they get, shit gets everywhere. They they poop, and they not, they don't like, it's like, you've seen that pig poop balls image, like. Oh, yeah, my favorite image. Like, animals that uh, get poop on them, and they don't really care about it that much. And sometimes that means poop's gonna get in the milk, uh, especially if you're keeping them in, like, a really dirty, horrific feedlot where, like, the shit piles up to their ankles. Yeah, sure. Um, And we'll talk about the conditions these cows are kept in, because, oh boy, Matt, (laughs) Are you going to enjoy that? Gigantic doo-doo baths. Let's Mm -hmm. hear about it, dude. I'm excited. Now, so this guy, Hurdy, who had been like, yeah, a little bit of formaldehyde might help, and then was like immediately horrified by what the food industry was doing. Um, He becomes an advocate uh, for reform within the legal system to stop this stuff. And as a result of his lobbying, Indiana passes a pure food law in 1899, which should have made the adulteration that, as we already said, went on well past 1899, very illegal. But -hmm. this keeps going on because the law was kind of it was more of an aspirational law than a real law because they were like, this isn't allowed. But they were also like, we're going to spend zero dollars to stop this. Like, we will not check on you. We will not enforce this. (laughs) We don't have the resources Um, to stop the uh, mm -hmm. formaldehyde milk from spreading. But we just want to let you know, not cool, buddy. It is kind of my ideal situation for drugs where we keep them illegal, but we also make it like fire all of the police and and DEA agents so that nobody can prosecute you for it. And then you can still feel cool when you do drugs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's that's the ideal. That's the sweet spot, baby. Yeah, you convince children not to do heroin until you turn a certain age and, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, 13. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. That's the age at which your brain That's the needs age in which you can ha- to have fun. <laughs> yeah, a certain amount, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, just yeah. a little bit. A little bit mm-hmm. goes a long way. It's like for that, That's why they used to give babies medicinal, children's medicinal heroin, you know? It's good times. Good That's babies. why our grandparents were all chill. such a healthy, yeah, so chill <laughs> about everything. <laughs> that's why they spent their whole lives withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Love our grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, the year after that law gets passed in, in Indiana, uh, Herdy's lab analyzes a pint bottle of milk that was handed to them by a family. And the family like buys some milk for their baby. And they notice that as they describe it, the milk appears to be wriggling. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> Damn it. You're liking this one, man? So, I don't even have to do like a a chemical analysis. I'm like a big milk drinker, so this is going to fuck me up. Like, I just, I enjoy a glass of milk and a banana. It's my, one of my favorite little snacks. It it turns out that what happened was that the dairyman had cut his milk because he he wanted to make it go longer, like heroin, and he cuts it with stagnant water. And there there was a worm colony in the stagnant water, and so many larvae breed in the milk that it's just like a kind of soggy mass of writhing larva. (laughs) It's the milk they (laughs) buy for their baby. (laughs) It's It's got extra protein. It's called moving milk. Don't worry. Move milk. Oh, you got some of that still milk, huh? Yeah, yeah, still milk is for I happen to love my child. I want them to get the extra nutrients. Real babies have uh, have, uh, it's like we call it a milkshake because it shakes. (laughs) This is the origin of the milkshake. Some poor motherfucker was eating cereal when this episode started. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> oh, bad time to have some cereal. So, Indiana, obviously, we've been focusing on because Dr. Hurdy was there and he gave a shit about this. This is happening every state in the union, right? This is everywhere. Everywhere that there's a city, at least. I think people who live in rural areas probably have access to healthier milk because they're getting it directly from the cow. They're probably better conditions for the cow. Um, They're not... You know, yeah. buying it from somebody who's going to mix in the pond water filled with right. shit. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the city milk that's just filled yeah, with it's, the, it's, amoebas it's, and, 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 and And thus the milk that the most people are drinking is, right. is fucking poison milk. Now, in the 1880s, one group of researchers had analyzed, like this is happening all over the U.S. And in, in New Jersey, there's a case uh, from the 1880s where these researchers analyzed random samples of milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they desc- they found what they described as liquefying colonies of bacteria in numbers so great that they gave up counting like they're just like this isn't even worth it like a lot this isn't milk this is just just bacteria this is pure bacteria yeah they have eaten all the milk there's none left for the babies yeah fuck and, and in disgusting. all of these cases, this is, again, happening everywhere. And the reason everywhere is that there's there's no such thing as health standards, really. A couple mm-hmm. of states, like Indiana, have tried to pass laws. There's usually no enforcement. And in most places, there's just no laws about what you yeah. can do. Um, and, yeah, a lot of, like, where the adulterants and, like, the poisonous stuff gets in is when the milk dealers cut their shit with various chemicals. Now, uh, and this is kind of like, you know, drug dealers today will cut, like, cocaine with, fen- with a little with bit of fentanyl. baby powder or fentanyl yeah yeah. and the fentanyl answer for milk usually well the baby i'll say the baby powder like the 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 Mm -hmm. the least harmful way generally to cut it was that they would add water um and the standard ratio was one pint of water for every quart of milk now they also skimmed the cream off the top of the milk right because they're trying to make as much money as possible so they don't want you getting extra cream they're going to use that to like (laughs) make something else and sell it to you but when you skim the cream off your milk and then water it down by like half Mm -hmm. there are what it, it looks it's it doesn't look like milk. It's this kind of like pale blue, weird right. looking beverage because it's not really milk anymore. Yeah. Um, so dairymen. Wait, is that why they call it skim milk? 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's. I never yeah, thought that's, about that because they, they skim the cream off it. Yeah, that is like that, that is literally why they call it skim milk, and I guess you could call this the origin of skim milk. But they're not saying it is; they're hiding it. So they have to, in order to hide it, they have to adulterate it so it looks right. So yeah. for the color, because it's this kind of pale blue color, they pour in plaster of Paris and chalk. Um, oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I was, and yeah. listen on this podcast. I was expecting uh, they poured in pure cum. Oh wait, just, it gets worse because that <laughs> yeah. just fixes the color, Matt. They haven't they, they've skimmed the cream off, right? You don't want people to know you've skimmed the cream off, so you have yeah, to fake a layer of cream on top. And what's what looks most like cream? No, no, come straight, come no, no, liquefied cow brains. Oh, bro, there's <laughs> other things that look like cream. There's other things. I just pouring cow brains on that shit. <laughs> It is that extremely is, funny. That is no longer kosher milk. I'm sorry. And of course, sometimes they'll they'll put because it gives it has a little bit of a yellow color. They'll put a little bit of lead in there too, just to make it look quite you know right. Are, to deepen are it. you serious? <laughs> yeah, of course you're gonna put a little bit of lead in there. Makes God. it sweeter too. <laughs> A little bit of antifreeze, you know. They put lead in. That doesn't even count as bad because let they put they're putting lead in everything. People yeah, can't back get in the day, the lead shit. was just part of it. It was like you mm-hmm. had your salt shaker and you had with your vitamin L, and then you had yeah, vitamin L lead shaker. <laughs> Fucking A, dude. So, milk was not alone or exceptional in its tendency to be adulterated among foods of the day. It's kind of mm-hmm. the most shocking example a lot of that, a lot of the time. But mm-hmm. food sellers, grocery stores, like food manufacturers, they're doing it with everything. And to make that point, I'm going to quote from Deborah Bloom again, this time writing in her wonderful book, The Poison Squad. Quote, Fakery and adulteration ran rampant in other American products as well. Honey often proved to be thickened colored corn syrup and vanilla extract, a mixture of alcohol and brown food coloring. Strawberry jam could be sweetened paste made from mashed apple peelings laced with grass seeds and dyed red. Coffee might be largely sawdust or wheat, beans, beets, peas, and dandelion seeds, scorched black and ground to resemble the genuine article. Containers of pepper, cinnamon, or nutmeg were frequently laced with a cheaper filler material, such as pulverized coconut shells, charred rope, or occasionally floor sweepings. Flour routinely <laughs> contained crushed stone or gypsum, or gypsum as a cheap <laughs> extender. Ground insects could be mixed into brown sugar, often without detection. Their use linked to an unpleasant condition known as grocer's itch. <laughs> well, we've all had a little bit of grocer's itch. A little bit of that grocer's itch, right? Because you're eating too many bugs in your bread. I a chocolate chip cookies, and now I got grocer's itch from the bugs. European governments, especially those of Germany and Great Britain, had been far quicker than the U.S. government to recognize and address problems of food adulteration. In 1820, a pioneering book by chemist Frederick Akum, titled A Treatise on Adulterations of Food and Culinary Poisons, had aroused widespread public outrage when it was published in London. Akum minced no words. Our pickles are made green by copper. Our vinegar rendered sharp by sulfuric acid. Our cream composed of rice powder or arrowroot and bad milk. Our confits mixed of sugar, starch, and clay and colored with preparations of copper and lead our ketchup often formed of the dregs of distilled vinegar with a decoction of the outer green husk of walnuts and seasoned with allspice he wrote <laughs> they had allspice back then Hell oh yeah. yeah they conquered the world for allspice <laughs> yeah, they did right. three or four genocides just to get their hands <laughs> on allspice delicious that's not an dash. exaggeration <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um 
And it gets worse with the candy industry. Confectioners often turn to poisonous metallic elements and compounds. Green came from arsenic or copper. Yellow from lead chromate. Cheerful rose and pink tones from red lead. In 1830, an editorial in The Lancet, the British Medical Journal, complained that millions of children are thus daily dosed with lethal substances. But the practices continued, largely due to business pressures on would-be government regulators. By mid-century, though, casualties were starting to mount in Britain. In 1847, three English English children fell seriously ill after eating birthday cake, decorated with arsenic-tinted green leaves. Five years later, two London brothers died after eating a cake whose frosting contained both arsenic and copper. In an 1854 report, London physician Arthur Hassel tracked 40 cases of child poisoning caused by penny candies. Three years later, 21 people in Bradford, Yorkshire, died after consuming candy accidentally laced with deadly arsenic trioxide. Accidentally, because the confectioner meant to mix in plaster of Paris instead. Although he had noticed his workers falling ill while mixing up the stuff the business owner had put the candy on sale anyway he was arrested and jailed as was the pharmacist who'd mistakenly sold him the poison in place of plaster but they could not even be convicted of any crime britain had no law against making unsafe or even lethal food products jesus christ isn't that dude. fucking insane That's insane it's he's like, pouring arsenic into candy kids uh, yeah. are dying left no, and right kids like it when it's green what's <laughs> green um something more poisonous please get some more poison in there that's too yeah, bland like, a color. That's mm. <laughs> so insane. I just love, they kill 21 people with bad candy, and then the cops are like, it's not illegal. <laughs> you can put as much poison in candy as you want. It's it's not actually in the rule book. You're it's allowed ex- to do this. There's nothing in the rules that says candy can't be arsenic. <laughs> yeah. Listen, if you write a law that says I can't poison children for profit, I'll gladly abide by it. <laughs> fucking a dude it is the per- and in, in england's credit again this is like the 1830s 40s like england germany a lot of europe like bans a lot of this shit but everything we've talked about keeps going in the u.s they're throwing mm. arsenic and lead and candy they don't give a yeah. fuck in the united yeah, states dude. right this is the land of the goddamn baby. free we can do whatever we want <laughs> i fucking I like one of the amendments should be my right to eat arsenic because that's green dead. is a cool You're damn color. right matt that's why i'm starting a new bakery these cakes will kill your children children <laughs> yes these cakes will in fact kill your children but they'll die free you know yeah, they, exactly, they won't man. die cucked by the yeah. medical establishment who <laughs> says children can't handle arsenic <laughs> five-year-olds just saluting on a cot in the icu <laughs> yeah. you know who else likes to salute five-year-olds while they're dying in the icu <laughs> the sponsors mm-hmm. that's right that's right matt leap <laughs> That's why they do it. That's why they they sell all these products. They have time for their real passion, mm-hmm. saluting dying children who are poisoned <laughs> by lead cake. All right, here we go. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Back. So... In the United States, for basically the whole 1800s, every attempt to impose any kind of like national food safety standards is opposed. All these attempts are opposed vigorously by the big businesses who made a lot of money selling lead candy and formaldehyde milk. For example, <laughs> Massachusetts lawyer George Thorndike Engel gave a big speech in 1879 to the American Social Science Pub- Public Health Association, where he read through a list of commercially sold foods that had been found to include parasites and brands of butter and cheese that had been 
found to be nothing but processed animal fat. Engel accused food producers of being a threat to both rich and poor and compared them to pirates, robbing people of their good health. Engel mailed copies of his speech to newspapers around the country, which forced American Grocer, a major trade publication, to take aim at him as a sensationalist, doing a disservice to consumers, although they did concede that it was bad when milk and candy killed children. Yeah. So like, <laughs> look, it's bad that kids keep dying, but this guy's this guy's not like out this guy's out of his mind. This guy is biased, all right? And listen, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have grocer's itch. Who doesn't? Mm-hmm. Okay? Look, we all wish kids would stop dying, but at what cost? That's what <laughs> we the people putting lead in your children's food ask. Listen, <laughs> You can either have a crying baby or a baby with a one in five chance of dying from this lollipop. Mm-hmm. Which would you prefer? Yeah, what do you want? You want milk that kills your kids or you want milk that's three cents cheaper? Huh? Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> How much are those kids worth for you anyway? <laughs> Supply and demand here, buddy. So, uh, Angle's argument, though, was convincing to Congressman Richard Beale from Virginia. He put forward legislation federally to ban all interstate commerce and chemically altered foods. And it's wild to think about how different, like, it would have gotten appealed at some point, right? Because you just mm-hmm. couldn't have a society like ours with that law on the books. Yeah, but it, yeah, never, yeah. it never gets made. It dies in committee. I'm not even saying, like, at the time, certainly would have been a good thing. There's mm-hmm. uh, That would have wouldn't have aged well. But it doesn't yeah. even get off the ground floor. Um, and, of course, that bill was... It's not the only thing that died in committee. Shitloads of kids were still being offed by poisonous foods. <laughs> it all got bad enough that the United States Congress distra- decided to take a break from edging the tip of the national cock into overseas colonialism. And in 1902, they funded the very first controlled trials of human food toxicity. These tests would be carried out by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Chemistry Squad, which was headed by a guy named Harvey Washington Wiley. Now, Wiley's pretty dope. He may be the Obi-Wan of our story. Um, He'd gotten his start in food science in 1881 when the Indiana State Board of Health asked him to look into honey, maple syrup, and other sweeteners. And his findings were that, in short, like, a lot of the people buying these things are not, in fact, buying these things. Um, Most of the, like, a lot of the maple syrup and honey in the market is just, like, corn syrup. They would sometimes even make, like, a fake wax honeycomb and dip it in the corn syrup so that it looked like you were getting real honey. Nice. Um, and, And realizing that, like, oh, wow, like, people going to the grocery store have no fucking clue what they're getting. Like, yeah. They, have, they don't have a goddamn idea what they're actually buying because uh, there's no requirement that they tell people what they're buying and actually deliver it on it. Um, and this kind of radicalizes Wiley. And he like de- like spends the rest of his career trying to stop this. Now, Nature, uh, a write up I found in Nature magazine describes his new job uh, at the USDA, quote, Wiley recruited young, healthy men as guinea pigs, starting with civil servants. They signed liability waivers and agreed to take part in hygienic table trials, eating free but strictly prescribed meals in an experimental kitchen in the USDA's basement in Washington, D.C. An excitable press dubbed them the Poison Squad. And they're trying to figure out, like, what things are bad for people. They're also trying to just, like, gain a real understanding of, like, nutrition and, like, what Mm -hmm. works, what preserves food. No one had really – this hadn't been done – pieces of this had been done in an organized way but like this is the first time that our government's like we should really like figure out what this stuff does to people right yeah like in a controlled setting give some people some lead and just yeah. you know and drop yeah, a couple you, you of you don't know at that point right like fight. it is like yeah. we laugh about it but like the romans put lead in fucking everything because they didn't right. realize it, like it was bad for them right um so you have and at this point we're starting to get some understanding of that but like a big part of it is this and uh, there's a lot of very brave people who are like yeah try shit on me we 
should know if this is killing people. So give it, give it a shot. Put it in me. Um, that's, so that's thanks, badass, guys. dude. I, I, yeah. yeah, you really you took one for the team here. Yeah, You're like, I'll eat pretty much anything. So just mm-hmm. like hook it up, dude. I don't, yeah. I don't give a shit. Throw it in me. Who gives a shit? Yeah, I'm drunk. <laughs> yeah, I ain't gonna oh, live yeah. that long anyway. It is the yeah. 1890s. Yeah. I made it to 20. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm an old man. Dude. I am Fuck dead me. inside already. Yeah. Feed me some more of that brain milk. My earliest memory is Sherman's March to the Sea. I'm done. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that brings us back to milk. Now, under President Cr- Grover Cleveland, Wiley's chemistry division started digging into the dirty world of big dairy. There was a lot of money in dairy, particularly since milk was seen as like the best thing to feed small children. The milk industry had been happy to cut corners for profits for quite some time. And I want to talk a little bit about swill, which is the kind of milk that most people in cities are drinking through like most of the mid to late 1800s, even some of the early 1900s. Was it branded swill? No, that's just what everyone called it. And we'll explain why in a second. So Deborah Bloom describes this swill as, quote, like making swill as, quote, the practice wherein distillers, liquor distillers, housed dairy cows in stinking urban warehouses where each animal was tethered immobile and fed on the spent mash or swill from the fermentation process used in making Uh whiskey so we have all these grains and shit for like whiskey even for beer too i'm sure they do it with that where you're like boiling all this grain for forever in order to like make the thing that you then ferment right Mm -hmm. um and once you boil anything for a while like like all this grain and stuff it doesn't have any real nutrition anymore because you've like boiled it to get all of that out that all goes into the thing that you're making that's why it's flavored and shit um so the cows that are fed on this stuff are like dying their entire lives they're horribly malnourished their bones are very soft um because the swill they're eating isn't food anymore so like all of these animals by the time they're adults have all of their teeth rot out um they live very short lives their malnourished bodies only produce milk for a short period of time Mm -hmm. and the milk they make which is what all these poor kids are drinking doesn't really have any nutritional value because again the cows aren't eating anything with nutritional value so they're just like making colored water in a lot of cases (laughs) One pediatrician at the time wrote, I have every year grown more suspicious of distillery milk. Wherever I have seen a child presenting a sickly appearance, loose flabby flesh, weak joints, capricious appetite, frequent retchings and occasional vomitage, irregular bowels with the tendency to diarrhea and fetid breath. So like... People are aware of this. Also, the the fact that it's called distillery milk should key you in. Yeah, on the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to go to the same sign. place for my bourbon and my milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, we sell cocaine. Oh, we also mm-hmm. sell fair trade coffee. It's like, yeah. I don't think. Both I don't of these think are, that's fair trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't think. I mean, it, I'm sure it was a fair trade for somebody. <laughs> Someone got a good end of the deal mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, our sponsors, the Sinaloa cartel, felt pretty good about that trade. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. The swill milk industry was eventually reformed, but that industry just yielded to the formaldehyde doping that we've already covered. Mm -hmm. By 1904, doping had uh, formaldehyde milk had spread to New Jersey, where one doctor blamed a surge in child deaths on the substance. In New York Mm -hmm. City, 20,000 deaths of children under two per year were blamed on poisoned milk. 
formaldehyde Jesus. wasn't even necessary. 20,000 kids a year in New that's York City insane. dying from bad milk. Yeah. Like, that's fucking wild. That is so many dead children. That is an insane amount of. De- it's like, at some point, you have to go, like, wouldn't this, like, in, like. Just shooting them easy, like, would kill less. <laughs> I, I mean, what, it, it just leads me to believe that this is a time it's like, oh, yeah, a lot, a, a lot of children die. Some yeah. of it's milk poisoning. Some of it is from the slide that's made of razor blades that mm-hmm. we have at every park. Like, this is. That's an yeah, insane we're, you, we're strapping kids to the streetcars to act yeah. as mirrors. Like we have all sorts of ways of killing kids. <laughs> it is New York in 1902. <laughs> and we're just like using their bodies as chimney sweeps. Mm-hmm. I mean, they die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they for, for sure die. Yeah. They're very easy to kill. Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and formaldehyde was not even necessarily the biggest threat in milk. Most of yeah. the deaths due to poison milk in New York, uh, particularly in like 1902, are probably as the result of a typhus epidemic that gets spread through tainted milk because oh, that's shit. a big cause of typhus outbreaks oh, is man. like milk. Yeah. Um, now, Wiley and Hurley were among the learned advocates who urged the government to take action. Everywhere they looked, Americans were being tricked into consuming things that weren't food and of course a shitload of babies were dying regulations keep being proposed and they are fought tooth and nail every time by food manufacturers so by the time the early 1900s run roll around a handful of journalists set themselves to the task of like exposing what's happening here often mm-hmm. with the direct help of guys from the chemical division so like these reporters yeah. are kind of working with Wiley and his men and one of these journalists is Henry Irving Dodge who adopted poison milk as his cause in 1904 Deborah Bloom writes Dodge had learned from a friend in the U.S. Senate that manufacturers were prepared to spend more than $250,000 to defeat any regulations and had already made major contributions to the campaigns of senators considered friendly to the cause. No wonder the proposed food legislation was going nowhere, he wrote. The Senate does not indulge in bawling opposition to the bill. Oh no, its weapons are much more effective and more deadly. It lets the bill die. The American government, he concluded, would rather protect wealthy business interests than protect the American people. I mean, not a thing people today would understand. No, 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 no. Thank God that's changed. Yeah. I mean, we can all be grateful for that. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, like two hundred thousand dollars to two hundred fifty thousand, which is like four or five billion dollars. Exactly. Like yeah. to fight the just just boil the milk. Yeah, just boil the goddamn. It's not hard. Milk. You are putting so much money <laughs> into not boiling the milk. It's yeah. just that's ridiculous. It is not like we're asking a lot. It's literally know? the least you could do with the milk. Hey, maybe we don't need to have 20,000 babies a year die in New York City. I will anybody, pay any anybody? amount of money to keep fire away from my milk. It's mm-hmm. fucking amazing. <laughs> So obviously, this is an outrage and should really piss people off. But the American people, as is often the case, had a lot going on right around this time. And while there were isolated eruptions of outrage when like a tainted meat tin would kill some soldiers, this happens around the time of the Spanish-American War. A bunch Mm -hmm. of soldiers get sick from like bad meat uh, or like whenever a spoiled milk batch would kill a whole kindergarten worth of kids. There's like all there's outrage in bursts and spurts, but it's very decentralized and scattered. And because of this, the massive meat packing and dairy industry these huge corporations and like conglomerates that have formed around this stuff are able to bribe and bully their way out of any kind of real regulations one of the things that leads that actually changes this that like really is a huge factor is a book called the jungle by upton sinclair which i'm sure most people are at least broadly familiar with Mm -hmm. um upton went undercover for months in a chicago meatpacking neighborhood and his vivid recollections of what he saw there were first published in serial form via a socialist magazine named 
named Appeal to Reason. When it was republished as a book in 1906, huge numbers of Americans were confronted with scenes like this, and I'm going to read from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. There were cattle which had been fed on whiskey malt, the refuse of the breweries, and had become what the men called steerly, which means covered in boils. It was a nasty job killing these, for when you plunged your knife into them, they would burst and splatter foul-smelling stuff onto your face. And when a man's sleeves were smeared with blood, his hands steeped in it, how was he ever to wipe his face or to clear his eyes so that he could see? Jesus Christ. They're just fucking blood pinatas. Yeah, they're like boil and pus and blood, and it's all getting over the meat, right? Because you can't see, and it's all over your hands, it's all over your knife, and you're like, you're processing this. If you're, we, oh. we, we slaughter and process animals semi regularly where I live, and if you're doing that, like one of the key, you don't even want like the hair of the animal when you skin it to touch the meat because it can spoil it. You, you, you want to be very careful, otherwise, it makes it nasty. And <laughs> These guys they're, are like, nah, they're just you like, just, you pop them like get a some balloon. Of, pus is just like, you're marinating it, man. Get it in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, just more nutrients. It's more mm-hmm. nutrients. Don't worry about the smell. It's got a lot of vitamin P. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. it's good stuff. So Sinclair had meant to reveal to people that the work in stockyards and meatpacking facilities was unconscionably inhumane, both to the humans working there and to the animals, right? He was he was upset about, like, the treatment of all of the living things in this nightmare system. Yeah. That's not what America really cares about. The nah. real impact that the jungle has on, on public opinion is that it scares people about how fucking filthy their food is. Right. Sinclair yeah. later said, quote, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident I hit it in the stomach. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'd like to pretend like I'm any better, but no, I'm not like fucking I didn't stop eating chicken nuggets until someone showed me the green, the the pink goo that it's mm-hmm. made out of. And oh, even I do then, love goo. I lasted a year and then I was like, nah, I could eat the goo. And then I went back to chicken nuggets. So yeah, I, someone I figure it, out though. how I can just get the raw goo. I'd like to just have that as a shake in the yeah, morning. Yeah, like know? a go Suck down some pink mm-hmm. goo. Yeah, like go it. Leave it out in the sun a little bit so it gets Stop good in age. It. What? So I like it's, when it's thick. A yeah. Thick green. <laughs> Pink goo in my Ooh, mouth. You know what? I think if I just mix that 50-50 with bourbon, that, oh, that would be yeah. all the nutrients I need. That's Hell like yeah, that's dude. that's my soilant. We call it googurt. That's your soilant. <laughs> that's my so- that's a performance beverage, Sophie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In I the morning, you throw a couple of shots I, of espresso in there too. You're good to go. I was I'm doing keto. And then you branded it and I went, okay. That's how you get that keto body. <laughs> that's true. The brand immediately makes it fun. You're yeah. like, all right, I'll eat it. That's that's going to be my new soylent. Sophie, figure out find find us a sponsor who will make my meat coffee <laughs> bourbon shakes and sell them as a performance beverage. <laughs> you know who these are good for is truckers. It'll get you the right amount of drunk, awake, and vomiting to really yeah. do those long haul drives. Dear yeah, God. you can get it all done in one go. Mm-hmm. Literally one mouth yeah. movement in <laughs> out immediately. And look, schools waste a lot of time cooking food. Mm-hmm. My meat slurry bourbon beverage. Everything all, a child needs all done. To, bo- it, to both be nutrified and to keep quiet. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bourbon. Their little bodies can't handle yeah, that much. Yeah. You know, we call it sleepy time. Shake me. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. Just keep them quiet. You know what? You're just warehousing them. Really? That's yeah. what all, all we're doing anymore. <laughs> it's called five loco. It's mm-hmm. even more loco than the previous. Loco. They barely breathe on it. So it's pandemic safe. <laughs> <laughs> so 
it's worth noting that when the jungle was published as a proper book like outside of like a magazine thing when it finds its publisher the publisher insisted on sending a copy of the manuscript to the chicago tribune and they're like hey here's the book we're publishing it's making some pretty shocking claims you guys are journalists why don't you investigate these claims and like render an opinion as to whether or not it's accurate right which if journalism exists is a responsible thing for a publisher to do Right. Here's the thing. It is 1906. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Upton Sinclair is the first person who's ever done a journalism in the United States. <laughs> you know? like, so I'm going to quote again from The Poison Squad by Deborah Bloom. At this Bloom. point, journalism is just for going to war with yeah, Spain. Well, yeah, that's, that's what <laughs> in it was United invented States, to do. Like, that's a point. It's to get people to agree to a war with Spain. Mm-hmm. This book isn't about Spain at all. <laughs> <laughs> quote, Tribune editors responded with a two dozen page rebuttal of the packing house descriptions. Alarmed, Page and Doubleday, his publishers, called Sinclair to their offices. But Sinclair promptly began picking apart the Tribune's critique. For instance, the paper had denied that the tuberculosis bacterium could survive on walls or floors of the packing rooms. Sinclair pointed out that the germ could indeed survive on those surfaces and could transfer to anything that touched them. He'd brought medical studies to prove it, as well as other evidence to back up his story. He further noted that the paper's owners were obviously friendly with the meat packers and sided with them. In fact, it would turn out that the newspaper's management had not assigned a reporter to study Sinclair's claims, but instead passed the task on to a publicist who worked for the meat packers. Nice. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so the, the, the newspaper goes right to the people that he's investigating. Is like, is this, do you, guys, you guys want to write a thing for us about this? Yeah. It's like, um, so I need you guys to write something that says, nah, uh, and mm-hmm. just every time he says yaha, you just mm-hmm. got to write nah again. I right? would write it, but you would not believe the amount of war with Spain we got to yeah, justify. We got a lot of war with Spain. There's so much Spain left, and yeah. we got to nip that shit right in the bud. Yeah. Also, I'm a little <laughs> bit busy because uh, all of my children are in the hospital for milk poisoning. Mm-hmm. You know, that you old know, thing. You know, babies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, babies. <laughs> so, Can't handle their milk. <laughs> The New York Times goes on to note, quote, about a month after the jungle was published, the White House started receiving a hundred letters a day demanding a federal cleanup of the meat industry. Roosevelt invited Sinclair to the White House, then ordered a federal investigation. Sinclair took every opportunity to harangue the beef trust, as the meat tra- packing industry was known, and sent a stream of telegrams to the White House demanding reform. Roosevelt soon tired of Sinclair's outspokenness. In a note to the author's publisher, the president wrote, tell Sinclair to go home and let me run the country for a while. <laughs> Oh, Teddy. I love it. What a what a pussy. But but they do. This actually gets some shit done from from Teddy's credit. He's part of shit starting to get done here. Um, The the Pure Food and Drug Act uh, is passed. Well, it's introduced into Congress in 1905, uh, the same year that Sinclair puts out the first version of the jungle. And it, but in early 1906, when the book version comes out, the, the act is stalled. Um, and it's so stalled that Harvey White, uh, Wiley, who's the main impetus behind the book, starts trolling people out of like hopelessness. Right. And he is mm. he kind of is the first guy to use Twitter. Uh, he said ah. he settles into a strategy of writing protest letters to newspapers and magazines about the ads they had for different snake oil medicines and tainted foods. He wrote this to the Washington Star. 
I have read with regret in your issue of Monday, January 29th, of the probably fatal illness of Buck Ewing, the celebrated catcher. Ewing, a former star player and manager for the New York Giants, was diagnosed with Bright's disease, which is a blood vessel inflammation in the kidneys. Um, and it, it killed people pretty fast in those days. Mm. Uh, Wiley noted that, like, hey, you're talking about how sad this is, but you've previously published an article about Dr. Kilmer's swamp root and claimed that it clears Bright disease. <laughs> and he's like i keep a bottle of it near me all the time because you've, yeah. you've insured me that it works so why don't you just tell this guy you know my chemists say it's nothing but alcohol and turpentine with a couple of spices <laughs> but if you're worried about buck ewing why don't you tell him to take this stuff it should cure his thing right away in I fact i'll send him a copy of your paper and let you know what he says and he dies like very shortly thereafter <laughs> i love the idea that someone was just like all right we got this bright's disease uh let's try swamp root this Swamps mm-hmm. are dark, right? What defeats yeah. the bright? Dark. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta knock that bright out with some dark. What's darker <laughs> than a swamp? <laughs> What's darker than the swamp? People yeah. still dying? Ah, oh, well, whatever. It's a clever ad campaign. And he does this, like, there's this malt coffee, which, uh, contains no actual coffee it's pure barley but it advertises itself as having real coffee flavor and he sends a letter to the newspaper advertising them being like how can you have real coffee flavor with anything but coffee isn't that the only <laughs> thing that can have real coffee flavor he's just quote tweeting Tastes yeah, like shit, he's bro. really just twittering <laughs> yeah. uh you know who else loves twitter mm. the products and services that support this podcast they are all repri- reply guys for the same K-pop band. I and love- it gets very sexual, actually, with all of our sponsors. Very sexual replies to this K-pop band. Oh, it's, good, it's, good. Yeah. And if we know one thing, it's the K-pop people. They're very normal online, and they mm-hmm. love to be sexualized. <laughs> That's actually the motto of mm-hmm. very normal online, and we love to be sexual. <laughs> am, I bleeping, right. am I bleeping? Yeah, you should bleep that. <laughs> Oh, here's some ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. So, while he was hectoring sketchy newspaper owners in print, Wiley and his poison squad had gathered together the sum of their years of study into America's endless variety of shit foods. Um, and this is Literally. like while they're trying to pass this act because they they put all this information together to try to like convince Congress we should do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta stop <laughs> eating poison and poo. Yeah. Yeah, we we really got to deal with all of these dead babies. Yeah, so, like fucking step one of a society. No more eating the poison poo. Yeah, no more eating the poop milk. Step yeah, two, please. maybe less worm milk. Not none. <laughs> yeah, not none. Yeah, just less. <laughs> so this passage from Deborah Bloom's book sums up the case that Wiley and his scientists made to Congress. For every food product, the chemistry division could point to a trick involved in its manufacture. Doctors continued to worry over reports of grocer's itch, a side effect of the deceptive process of grinding up insects and passing the result off as brown sugar. Sometimes live lice survived the process. Beer, which most consumers imagined to be derived from malted barley and hops, was often made from a cheaper ferment of rice or even corn grits. So-called aged whiskey was often still routinely rectified alcohol, diluted and colored brown. As Wiley had found 20 years earlier at Purdue, corn syrup was widely still used as the basis for fake versions of honey and maple syrup. Many manufacturers argued that they had to fake products to stay competitive. Detroit canner Walter Williams of Williams Brothers described the making of his Highland Strawberry Preserves. The jam was, he said, 45% sugar, 35% corn syrup, 15% apple juice made from discarded apple skins, some scraps of apple skin and cores, and usually one or two pieces of strawberry. The strawberries cost him, he added. Many (laughs) compare... (laughs) 
It costs a lot of money to get those two strawberries. You got those two pieces of strawberries are really putting me out of house and home. (laughs) Many comparably priced preserves were just glucose, apple juice, and red red dye and Timothy seed added to simulate strawberry seeds. If we could sell pure goods, I would be pleased, Williams insisted. I believe they should be labeled, showing their ingredients and showing the quality of the goods. But as there was no law setting such standards, and as he had to compete with less scrupulous canners, there was no way for him to stay in business unless he cut costs to match. Wiley testified that about 5% of all foods were routinely adulterated, with the number being much higher, up to 90% in categories such as coffee, spices, and food products made for selling to the poor. God, of course. <laughs> if your food is for poor people, it is not food. It's not food. It's just <laughs> it is straight not, up not yeah. food. <laughs> we just ground up some dirt. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the sawdust pizza that I feed yeah. to my maid every three weeks. We mix some sawdust in with piss. You can't tell the difference between that, <laughs> that and bread. <laughs> I make Tastes her eat the it same. off the ground, you know. She doesn't know the difference. The ground is what we call a natural place. It's piss from the bars, so there's lots of <laughs> barley in it. Well, they're poor bars, so it's just ground up rice meal but you know sometimes i just shove a bar of soap into the mouth of a poor to see if they live for another week it's nice it cleans the body and it's delicious so Wiley's solution to all of this horror is the Pure Food and Drug Act, and it's hard to see this as anything unreasonable, but the grocery, meatpacking, and canning companies threatened by the bill had to find a way to make it unreasonable. In the time-honored tradition of shady rich bastards, they decided to smear Wiley. Since his data was impeccable, they went after him for hating freedom. Dudley uh, and company, yeah. yeah, baby, that's how you do it! Yes, America! That's how you do America! That's how you do it, man. Our freedom to feed yeah. poor people does <laughs> it's extremely funny <laughs> dudley and co canned goods used the grocery world magazine to publish editorials attacking wiley as the nation's janitor which it's hard to make that seem he wants to clean things up yeah yeah <laughs> that's an insult it's just like mm-hmm. oh you know fucking janitors always going around he's like those guys who stop us from living in our own shit <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> just, stop trying to wipe my ass mom <laughs> I like it like this. (laughs) The idea is that he was a busybody, policing the American stomach and again attacking freedom. During Mm -hmm. one industry event where Wiley meets with food company representatives, he's accused in person by the owner of a cannery for wanting to be dictator of the food industry. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Stalin trying to stop us from putting sawdust in the bread and piss in the whiskey. Fucking Stalin over here was just like, oh, I don't like when children die from poison milk. Fuck he doesn't you. want. Look at this Pussy. motherfucker. What does he think he is? The czar trying to stop kids from dying from milk? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Much of is, this. This yeah. is amazing because, like, it, it, it just. It's so I mean, America. You, it's so American. It's so it American. Be more American. It, you can't be more American than people mm-hmm. literally spending uh, like the equivalent of millions of dollars mm-hmm. to just be like, I gotta feed them the poison. I gotta do it. I don't mm-hmm. care that this is costing me more money than taking the poison out. That, and mm-hmm. guess what? Freedom. I mm-hmm. love it. You love to see it. We well, love to see it. We've always been the same. 
Yeah. Now, Wiley was not purely concerned with food here or with like the raw ingredients that people generally consider food. And in fact, as this law came closer and closer to passing, he was increasingly getting getting involved in something that had become a source of substantial profits for the biggest players in the industry. Mm. Wiley was now obsessed with the use of new and experimental preservatives on various foodstuffs. Now, some of them were like what we've talked about based on formaldehyde, like freezing. Mm. Um, But there were a whole bunch of other different, not all preservatives, new food additives. This is the period in which people start to adulterate food when you get Mm. your first processed meats and these companies are putting stuff in for flavor and to preserve it. And there's no regulation for any of this at this point. And this is really concerning to Wiley. The poison squad describes the birth of this subset of the chemical industry in a paragraph that you may recognize some of the names from. In addition to preservatives, companies developed synthetic compounds to make food production cheaper. The sweetener saccharin, discovered in 1879 at Johns Hopkins University, cost far less than sugar and quickly replaced it as a cost-saving alternative. Flavoring agents such as laboratory-brewed citric acid or peppermint extracts could now be used in drinks and other products instead of fresh lemon juice or mint, again saving costs and again crowding the farmer out of the supply chain. The pioneering industrial chemist Charles Pfizer, who had founded his New York pharmaceutical company in 1849, now also produced borax, boric acid, cream of tartar, and citric acid for use in food and drink. They loved putting borax in shit. Like, doses so high it would kill people. It was great. (laughs) Chicago's Joseph Bauer, whose liquid carbonic company produced the pressurized gas used in the fizzing drinks of soda fountains, had become so interested in artificial sweeteners that in 1901, he had invested in a new business in St. Louis, the Monsanto Chemical Company, to produce saccharin in large quantities. Saccharin production had also launched the Hayden Chemical Works of New York City in 1900, although that company also branched into the preservative market, producing salicylic acid, formaldehyde, and sodium benzoate for use in food and drinks. The food and drink market also attracted Herbert Henry Dow, founder at age 31 of the Dow Chemical Company in Midlands, (laughs) Michigan. Dow had been a chemistry student at the Case Institute of Technology uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, so he creates Dow Chemical Company in 1897. So yeah, all of these guys, this is where they get their start, like shooting shit into food. Wow. Wiley's not wanting to like not not saying we should ban all this. He's not some sort of like hippie fanatic, but he's like, we should know what these number one people need to know if these are in their food. Right. Right. Like you should have to tell people I'm not going to say you can't put citric acid or sodium benzoate in food, but people should know. Right. Like that's that we should be doing that. And also we should figure out if this stuff like the the food, the people putting this in food should be showing that it's not harmful. Like they should be funding research to make which, as we'll talk about, becomes problematic. Right. Um, Mm. Um, but it is a good idea that like, well, we can't just start stu- shooting this stuff into food. We should know what it does. Right now, the people who are and there's a lot of scientists who are like, no, nah, like we don't need to be doing this. Like the preservatives mm. stop the food from spoiling. Do we need to study what else they do? We know how bad spoiled meat is. And they do have a point yeah. in this period where it's like, well, we know it's this shit's killing so many kids a year. Like, right. do we care if they get sick 40 years later? Right. Yeah. Like, right. Which is yeah. like 40 years. That's an right. entire lifespan of a human they'll yeah. be fine yeah it's like you got to take the good with the bad here i i, I yeah. understand a little bit of it where they're just like hey listen they're not getting the foodborne illnesses yeah. and you know yeah their skin is like orange now and one of their lungs fell out but like like whatever they're, they're alive unlike they're all those kids babies. who drank them were milk <laughs> yeah, exactly 
Harvey Wiley was not particularly good at the give and take compromise nature of politics. He was too much of a scientist. And yeah. so he's he one of the reasons this law has trouble passing. A lot of people will argue is that he's not willing to kind of like give any back. Um, mm-hmm. And he's he's as adamant about like wanting strict laws about preservatives as he is about like, well, we should be pasteurizing milk. Right. And right. there's a good point to be made like, no, pasteurizing milk is like, get that done first. Right. It's more of a priority to do this shit. Yeah. Um, and so in the end, the pure food law only passes because Upton Sinclair's book causes this national outrage, which prompts Teddy Roosevelt to champion the bill personally, and it passes. The pure food law was the first major victory in the war to ensure Americans actually knew what the fuck they were eating. Actually and ate she, food. Yeah, actually <laughs> ate food. <laughs> As opposed to pure poison in a sack. It was just followed a, in night. Yeah. Uh, just a completely like self-inflicted wound. Like, yeah this war that we created on ourselves oh good it's very funny yeah (laughs) now the pure food law was the first major victory in the war to ensure americans actually like yeah again had any idea what they were eating it was followed in 1938 by the passing of the food drug and cosmetics act which established the food and drug administration for the first time so that's when 1938 1906 we get the pure food law which Mm -hmm. lays the groundwork for the fda the fda comes into being in 38 Mm -hmm. and initially when it started, it's funded entirely by taxpayer money, right? And it is invested with the, you might say, sacred authority to protect U.S. consumers from the businesses making their food. Yeah. Um, this is a titanic step forward, and it cements an end to the wildcat era of tainted milk, fake coffee, arsenic and lead riddled candy. It's a <laughs> huge deal. Now, a lot of that stuff had started to get, fi- started to get fixed in 1906, obviously. Um, but 19, making the FDA is a huge move forward and a very good it's it was absolutely necessary i want to establish before we tear it down in the next episode we had to have something like this like you could not it i don't care how much of a fucking libertarian is you can't let that state of affairs go on the market we we have proved the market cannot correct itself with this stuff it's just so much cheaper to feed people poison weirdly Um, enough the market would rather spend more money on continuing the poison trade rather than (laughs) they love poisoning people they love you can't stop him. You can't yeah, stop him. You can't stop a guy from poisoning uh, his, his, all of the people he's feeding. Yeah. Good for so, him. So, you know, the, the FDA starts as a, a beautiful, necessary thing. And then in the 1980s, about a century after Dr. Wiley's journey began, the bright dream of the Food and Drug Administration began to go terribly wrong. But Matt, <laughs> we're going to talk about that in part two. You got any oh, pluggables good. to plug? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the Pod Yourself a Gun, the world's only Sopranos podcast, uh, is is out now. And check out the Film Drunk broadcast. Also, I'm on I'm on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow me at Matt Leap Jokes. I need more of those. You know, no one gives a shit about my Twitter anymore. You know. Yeah, it's follow him Instagram. at Matt Leap Jokes. Follow I, him. Follow now. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people send him care pictures more of your milk. Gram, I think mm-hmm. people just care more about the gram. You know, yeah. it's just yeah, it's a shame because of beyonce i yeah. don't know if she's on the gram i assume of course so she's on the gram robert she must be right amateur also like my twitter i, I used do to, not have a gram hmm. i used to have a blue check mark but i got it taken away on twitter and i hope to get one who on took your blue check mark away oh uh, twitter did because i pretended to be the new york times <laughs> uh, oh <and> yeah <laughs> that'll do it 
<laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to do that, apparently. But it was a great post. It was, uh, you know. I mean, I, I do just, love that for you. Like, what I love, <laughs> I think my favorite example of that is it's the lady from I Think You Should Leave who did the, um, mm-hmm. uh, the I can't get enough wine, like that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, sketch. Yeah, yeah. She's been in a few of them. Uh, but she did. It was like when Oreos did some sort of Pride Month thing, she, uh, uh, pretended to be Nilla Wafers using her mm-hmm. check mark and was like, Nilla Wafers, we don't like bisexual people. <laughs> like, you're not allowed to eat our cookies. <laughs> or something like that. It was very funny. Oh, <laughs> and that's why it. she's not on Twitter anymore. <laughs> I love it. Nilla Wafers taking strays from yeah. people. <laughs> that rules. I should note, people are going to give a shit every because they do every time we like make jokes about people dying at 40. Obviously, the way lifespans work is that so many kids died as babies. Once, If you mm. made it to an adulthood, you had a pretty good chance of at least making it to like 50 or 60. Right, a lot right, of people right. made it to their 70s. Yeah. Yes, that's true. It's funny to joke about people dying at age, like being old at age 30 back then. Because look at a picture of a 30-year-old from the 1890s. They look like your fucking grandpa. They're like, covered in soot. <laughs> They yeah, could they have are. just taken a shot. It is permanently embedded mm-hmm. soot in their body. Mm-hmm. All of it's their wrinkles. It's extremely funny how sick yeah. and dying everybody was back <laughs> yeah. in the day. Well, um, you know, they they just a society that loved poison milk. Mm-hmm. What can you do? It was a whole world of people exactly as healthy as Jair Bolsonaro. <laughs> <laughs> just constantly getting their doo-doo backed up and being like, well. Spewing go. shit out of their noses because there's so much poop in the milk. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go to the uh, hospital again, but first I gotta run by this emu and see if he'll punch me in the throat. <laughs> um, oh boy. Um, so yeah, find Matt Lieb on Twitter. Also, I have a fiction novel, uh, my book After the Revolution. You can find it for free as an ebook at atrbook.com, but it's also available for pre order through AK Press. If you order now, you will get a signed copy. So just Google AK Press After the Revolution, pre order my book. It'll come out in May and you'll get it signed. AK Press after the revolution. Um, Google it and you'll find the pre-order page. And, All right, I'm, pre- and, I'm pre-ordering and, it right now. And Robert, we have a, a, a behind the bastards live stream. Show oh God, with, we have uh, so much to plug. Shit. I okay, know, with prop on mm-hmm. February seventeenth. Okay, can get tickets at momenthouse.com slash You sure can. You'll It'll be, be a good episode, probably. I haven't written it yet. You'll Shit. be there. I will. I think so. Mm-hmm. That's you probable. I might even have an episode written. Great. <laughs> All right. Just wing it, dude. (laughs) Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.